Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. 160 years ago, abolitionist John Brown came to Detroit with 11 former slaves who were seeking freedom across the Detroit River. And on this day, 160 years ago, Brown met with two other leading abolitionists of the day, Frederick Douglass and William Webb. They met in Webb's home here in the city. That meeting set the course by which John Brown helped spark the social upheaval that led to the Civil War and the end of slavery. Today, the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law and the DeWitt C. Holbrook Memorial Trust are hosting an event about that meeting titled Detroit's Abolitionist History, 160 Years of Fighting for Justice. The keynote speaker at that event will be David Reynolds, who's author of John Brown Abolitionist, The Man Who Killed Slavery, Sparked the Civil War, and Seeded Civil Rights. Reynolds recently spoke with Detroit Today producer Jake Neer. Here's that conversation. At age 12, uh, John Brown uh, totally turned against slavery. He devoted his life because he, uh, on a trip with his father, he uh, started playing with a uh, slave boy that he met. And the boy was not allowed to eat at the dinner table uh, along with the, the white people. And the boy was driven outside with a shovel. And so John Brown, just at the very young age, said, I'm, I'm going to devote my entire life to trying try to get rid of this cruel institution of slavery. And so he grew up and uh, he became a farmer, a tanner, a wool uh, uh, salesman, salesperson. He also was very active on the Underground Railroad and uh, escorted a lot of uh, slaves or or, uh, directed them on to Canada. And uh, he was completely free of racism. He became very militantly abolitionist because uh, he really wanted to devote himself to getting rid of slavery uh, totally. And um, that's finally, so finally uh, he became famous in 1856 when he went to Kansas, which was a territory uh, that was not yet a state. And the big question was, Kansas going to become a slave state or uh, or a free state? Was it going to have slavery or freedom? So he went there to try to back the Freedom Party, but it was a very, very violent place at the time uh, between the two uh, the two uh, forces, and uh, it was called Bleeding Kansas because there was so much warfare going on between the pro-slavery and anti-slavery people, and, and John Brown actually uh, at one point took up um, his sword, literally broadswords, and uh, he, he and his men uh, killed uh, uh, five uh, pro-slavery settlers. Although, you know, that was just one of many, many uh, acts of violence uh, committed by both sides, mainly the pro-slavery side. But that's what really made, I mean, he became famous because of his general warfare in Kansas against slavery. And uh, so uh, he became a kind of hero to the anti-slavery North. And that's, you know, that's that's when he really emerges on the national scene. Yeah, I wanted to, to dig into what led him from someone who thought that he would like to uh, end this practice of slavery to to someone who would adopt this really sort of violent view of enacting change, that embracing that tactic as a way to reach his political goals. Right. Well, he was uh, an extremely religious person. Um, he came to think of himself as, as really uh, one of the people appointed by, by God to... to uh, rid uh, America of the enslavement of 4 million 
uh, African Americans, you know, black people back then, and and so he really um, was uh, very uh, devout, and um, he uh, had kind of a holy mission, uh, you know, sort of a religious mission to get rid of slavery, and um, what was happening in the nation was that it was becoming increasingly pro-slavery because you had a series of laws, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and then the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, and then the Dred Scott decision, which um, stripped uh, African Americans of any uh, recognition as people that white people had to respect whatsoever. In other words, it said uh, literally, uh, you know, blacks have no 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 rights whatsoever that the white people have to respect. And and he is someone who really treated both African Americans and, and Native Americans as his, his equal, his equal. And um, he was he was just driven to uh, a sense of frustration. He felt that also the American government at that time was dominated by uh, people who supported slavery, people like Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan, and uh, um, even though they were Northerners, they actually went along with the South, South and trying to protect slavery. This was before Lincoln was elected. He didn't know really what to do, and uh, so he, it's not that he was naturally violent, because he had objected to violent uh, violence early on and had not joined the militia, because as a Christian, he didn't want to take up, uh, take up violence. But he was kind of, he felt he was driven to it by these horrible laws that were being passed, that were supporting slavery, and the whole government that was completely positioned uh, on behalf of, of human slavery. And uh, so that, that that's why he took up weapons. That, that's interesting because it seems like, it, it sounds like you're painting a picture of someone who is almost reluctant to, to go there, and it was a sense of powerlessness in the equation that, that drove him to it. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, it really is. Um, he wasn't naturally uh, violent, uh, and he didn't like gratuitous violence either. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer. I'm speaking with David Reynolds. He's a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's author of John Brown, Abolitionist, The Man Who Killed Slavery, Sparked the Civil War, and Seated Civil Rights. Uh, now, uh, David Reynolds, you say that he was essentially free of racism. I mean, it seems like it would be hard to find someone in history that that was enlightened in that way. Yeah, um, and actually, among African Americans, John Brown is really the one, even to this day, uh, the one white person uh, who kind of stands out in history as someone who is really sympathetic to them. Now, someone like William Lloyd Garrison, who was a very uh, strong anti-slavery abolitionist, um, even he had, uh, you know, a slight measure of not not racism really, but a certain kind of condescension or something like that. Wendell Phillips, who was also a, a white abolitionist, was less less so. He was he was a little more like John Brown, but you can almost count on one, one hand the number of, of uh, prominent abolitionists who were as kind of racially open uh, as, as John Brown was. In fact, Detroit was, was very important because John Brown uh, came there in 1859 with some slaves that he had freed in Missouri, and he wanted to put them on the Detroit River to go over to Canada. And when he was in Detroit, he met 
met up with a, a group of, of African-Americans. Frederick Douglass uh, happened to be there at the time, so we met, met with him and William Webb and um, Thomas Carey, William Monroe, these, uh, George de Baptiste. These were all uh, um, African-Americans in the area, and, and they met uh, in Detroit, and uh, they kind of plotted uh, their plan, or he, pl- he explained his plan uh, to them. So, but that was kind of typical that he would really confide, confide mainly in in African Americans. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about that that meeting in Detroit that you bring up. Uh, you're you're actually in town for an event called Detroit's Abolitionist History: it's 160 Years of Fighting for Justice. It's presented by the Dewitt C. Holbrook Memorial Trust in the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. Anyone listening, if you want more information, you can find that at law.udmercy.edu. Uh, but David Reynolds, this this uh, event that you're speaking at as a, for a keynote speech, this is the 160th anniversary of that meeting in Detroit between Frederick Douglass, John Brown, and at the home of William Webb. Um, and it says here that John Brown had traveled to Detroit with 11 former slaves that were seeking freedom across the river in Canada. Can you talk a little bit about what was discussed at that meeting a little bit more and sort of the significance of of that meeting right here in Detroit 160 years ago. Well, it brought together John Brown, who was already quite famous as a, uh, a warrior against slavery, um, a white white uh, warrior with a group of very, very important uh, African-American people, uh, one of them Frederick Douglass, one of them William Webb, they met uh, at 633 East Congress Street um, uh, at the home of, of William Webb. And George de Baptiste and uh, uh, William Lambert. Now, the, William Monroe, um, Monroe was the pastor of the Second Baptist Church, which was one of the first anti-slavery churches uh, really in, uh, in America. And... Um, one of the most important ones, and all these people, and also there was a, another African-American named Isaac Shad who was there, and all these people were very, very important uh, in the Underground Railroad. So Detroit was um, an extremely, uh, uh, one of the most important uh, places for the Underground Railroad when um, slaves were passed to the north, uh, quite often they would they would come to Detroit because they could ferry ferry across the river to uh, or be taken to Canada uh, across the Detroit uh, River. So uh, one understands why uh, Detroit was so very, very important. And um, all of these men that I mentioned uh, who met with John Brown uh, were um, men with, with real histories of devotion to fighting slavery and they really, uh, and not just fighting slavery, but they supported uh, trying to get the vote uh, for African Americans at the time, which was a, a very progressive thing to try to do. And um, um, they felt that they could work together as an African American group. So even though there were a few white members of their society, uh, it, it was principally an African American group. And uh, so it's interesting that then John Brown would come, they would meet uh, after Frederick Douglass's lecture, and he uh, discussed his plan, which was to um, invade the South and try to spark a slave revolt down 
in the south. He didn't specify mm. where. It turned out to be Harper's Ferry, Virginia. And um, then flee with those uh, with the slaves that he uh, would free down there, liberate, and take them up to the uh, Appalachians, which are nearby there. And uh, the Appalachians run all the way from New England all the way down to Georgia. Georgia, and he knew knew the mountains very well. He had been a surveyor, and he he thought that with even a small force, uh, he could slowly proceed down the Appalachians using the caves and the hideouts and, and the cliffs and everything as, as kind of his protection, and uh, raid other plantations, free more slaves, and really create a sense of terror or panic in the South. Mm. Um, not that he was going to uh, sort of single-handedly free all the slaves, but he thought that, the, uh, that there would be a sense of, of panic uh, when these slaves were taken away uh, the kind of panic that was created by Nat Turner in 1831 in Virginia, where actually Virginia came close at that time to uh, liberating its slaves because they were so sort of terrified by the slave rebellion. Then. Mm. So John Brown was, was kind of building on that. And we've, we've even seen in modern times how um, a, a relatively insignificant group of determined people, now this is uh, these are terrorists in an opposite direction. These are not for for uh, freedom and, and, and racial equality. These were terrorists hiding out in the mountains of Afghanistan and so forth. But but still, they dangled the West on a string for a long time, and yet they were a very very tiny you know tiny force. And so John Brown envisaged this force uh, creating almost what we would call cells, sort of terror cells going down uh, the Appalachians, and at the same time sending um, uh, uh, slaves that didn't want to join the team up uh, in the other direction toward uh, Canada, toward the north in Canada. So he exposed all this uh, without specifying where he was going to do this. Frankly, uh, there were some eyebrows that were raised. <laughs> Frederick D Douglass thought it was too risky. Mm -hmm. And uh, George de Baptiste, who is an African-American um, uh, well, he was the tailor and a few other things, but he was uh, a reformer underground. He uh, uh, preferred the idea of actually blowing up a hundred uh, churches in the South. Uh, so that was real, wow. real terrorism, you know. Sure. And yeah, and uh, but his plan was was rejected, and they said, "Okay, well, we'll we'll support your plan, John Brown." So they they kind of threw their weight behind John Brown after a certain amount of debate and. Uh, initial uh, kind of suspicion and, and rejection. And this was just seven months or so before he led the raid on Harper's Ferry, is that right? Yeah, this was, uh, this was yeah, this was in um, 1859 in, in March. So uh, that summer he actually went down five miles away from Harper's Ferry across the uh, river in Maryland and kind of camped out there. And then he plotted all summer, all that summer, uh, and he gathered some people, including five African-Americans, who uh, in October, on October 16th, actually began the raid on Harper's Ferry, Virginia. So, yeah. So it's, it, I think it would be fair to say that this meeting in right here in Detroit is what set him on that path, or at least propelled him down that path toward this major event in, in, in history. Yeah. Well, it was certainly uh, a crystallizing moment uh, coming so close to the actual time of, of his going down there. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah. What what happened there in Harper's Ferry for for those who may need a refresher on that? Well, Harper's Ferry was a place uh, where there was an arsenal, a federal arsenal of weapons. And part of his his aim was to not only free the slaves that lived in that region, but also convene them at Harper's Ferry and and gather some weapons with which they would then uh, go to the mountains, the nearby mountains. So if they were pursued, at least they would have some weapons to fight with. So he did raid with the... Uh, you know, 21 followers, including uh, five uh, African-Americans. He raided Harper's Ferry on October 16th. And they did collect uh, a fair number of enslaved people from that area. They liberated them and brought them down to Harper's Ferry. And they they, uh, held uh, the white masters of these, the owners of these slaves as as hostages. Um, However, he kept waiting for more and more enslaved people to join him. He, he basically delayed too long. And instead of going to the mountains uh, fairly expeditiously, he delayed for about a day. And finally, the word got out, and he was surrounded by militia and eventually by troops, federal troops under Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart, who later fought in the Civil War for the South. He was surrounded by them, and then he was brought to prison. He was he was trapped in the fire engine house along with his uh, men and his prisoners in Harper's Ferry, and there was an attack on the engine house. He was wounded very badly, and uh, several people were killed in the fight, but he was taken to prison, and he was put on trial. Right, and it was interesting to me to read about how it seems like his the, it was the press coverage of his trial maybe as much as the press coverage of Harper's Ferry itself that sort of drove that wedge deeply in American culture uh, at the time that that it was uh, you know that this is it was sort of the the fact that he went on trial that led to these deep divisions. Yeah, I, I think that if he had died, uh, been killed, um, as he almost was killed um, at the engine house in Harper's Ferry, then he wouldn't have had as great an impact. But what happened is that when he was in jail, um, he remained very, very calm. And um, he realized that at this point, he said, uh, the best thing I can do now is to hang, is to, is to be executed, because he realized that he he had to serve as a martyr martyr really to the anti-slavery um, cause and he was offered the leading clergyman in Virginia to go with him to the to the gallows because he was he was put on trial and he was charged on several counts and uh, he was going to be executed in Dece- on December 2nd but he said you know what I would rather walk to my death with a, a ragged a slave woman, an enslaved woman and her child, uh, rather than the leading uh, priest or clergyman in, in Virginia. You know, he really he really uh, wanted to be identified with, with the cause of African Americans. And he was actually interviewed in jail, and he, he just very, very uh, directly said, look, I didn't, I didn't come here to do violence. I, I really came here to, to free the slaves. Hmm. And unfortunately, I think that this land will have to be purged in blood. He said that, that sadly, I think that only after very much bloodshed will slavery disappear. And he was really prophesying the Civil War. 
and not that he wanted war, but he but he kind of realized that that that's what it was going to take to uproot slavery. And it was really his uh, performance when he was um, on trial and when he was in prison and writing letters. His letters were published in a lot of newspapers, and um, that's what really made the difference. And so people like Henry David Thoreau, who admired him, and they said it really wasn't his weapons that did anything. It was it was his words. It was his words and and his his courage. And when he was finally executed, uh, well, Robert E. Lee directed the execution, and Stonewall Jackson was the future Stonewall Jackson was there. Even John Wilkes Booth, who was an actor, um, who later he later killed uh, Lincoln, of course, but he was a white supremacist. And but he he left his acting gig just to come and, and watch John Brown hang because they all hated John Brown. Wow. But John Brown was very, very calm. You know, he was like the calmest. Everybody else was nervous, and he he walked up to the scaffold, and he, he thanked his jailer. His jailer was a slaveholder. I mean, he had he'd become very close to his, his jailer, and he said, you know, thank, thank you for your services. I appreciate it. Uh, and he, here he's talking to a slaveholder. It's not that he, you know, he hated slaveholders whatsoever. It's just that he, he hated slavery. And uh, but to the very very end, he he just was courageous, mm. and and that's why he became a kind of martyr. I think if all of that had not happened, that he really would have been pretty much dismissed as a oh this kind of wild fanatic type or something like that. Coming up, we'll hear more of Detroit Today producer Jake Neer's conversation with David Reynolds, author of John Brown, abolitionist. listening to Detroit Today, and I'm Stephen Henderson. We're listening to a conversation between WDET producer Jake Neer and David Reynolds, who's the author of John Brown, Abolitionist, the man who killed slavery, sparked the Civil War, and ceded civil rights. Here's more of that conversation. That title, I mean, it gives uh, John Brown a lot of credit in a lot of ways for, again, killing slavery, sparking the Civil War, ceding civil rights. I mean, uh, again, this is not someone who uh, just plays a role in history by that title. This is someone who really creates it in, in at least the picture that you're painting here. Well, you know, uh, it's sort of a consciously exaggerated title, because what it was, but, but what really happens is that uh, John Brown really drives a wedge between the North and the South, and he becomes a symbol in the North for this kind of courageous battle against slavery. And when Lincoln was elected, uh, at first he didn't really want to have a war. He only had, Lincoln only wanted a war to repair the Union, not necessarily to get rid of slavery, which he said would just be a John Brown raid on a gigantic uh, scale. But it turned into to precisely that. Uh, the Civil War slowly became a John Brown raid on, on an entire uh, scale, on a large scale. And uh, the favorite marching song of the Civil War was John Brown's Body, 
lies moldering in the grave, but a soul keeps marching on, which uh, became the basis of the Battle Hymn of the Republic with the same uh, glory, glory, hallelujah um, chorus. So the John Brown song becomes the uh, basis of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and John Brown becomes a kind of symbol for the uh, sort of selfless courage that it really took for people to walk into battle. So in that sense, he kind of feeds into the spirit of the Civil War. And uh, in terms of civil rights, what happens is that, um, again, you know, Frederick Douglass, after the Civil War, said, I could live for the slave, for, for people of my race. John Brown died for people of my race. And he mm. said that John Brown's courage and devotion were even greater than mine. And people like Frederick Douglass and then W.E.B. Du Bois, who really was one of the founders of the actual civil rights, the civil rights movement, he wrote a biography of uh, John Brown. And the first meeting of the NAACP, which at the time was kind of a uh, civil rights group, uh, met in 1909 uh, at Harper's Ferry in honor of John Brown. So there's this kind of continuum continuum right from the Civil War up to the Civil Rights Movement. So Yeah, yeah. it's it's interesting because, you know, when there is a moment in history or a moment in, in even current events that is very controversial, it's the the phrase, history will be the judge, right? Uh, John Brown, historically, is one of those figures that sort of it still seems like we're still working out how we're supposed to think of him. I mean, you know, many people still laud him as someone who helped bring down the worst institution in American history and slavery. And then there are others that still talk about him as a terrorist, a murderer. Uh, how yeah. do you how do you think uh, that should play well, out? How should he be remembered? Um, I mean, are those things mutually exclusive? Well, I what, what I think is that unfortunately there have been some people who – use John Brown as an example for not to get rid of slavery or something like that, but but for other reasons, like uh, a couple of uh, killers of abortion doctors, for example. Uh, murderers uh, say uh, they're following, you know, John Brown's example and so forth. So the, the, prob- uh, the, the issue surrounding John Brown is what's called the higher law. Is there a higher law that you can follow that's, that's kind of above human law? Because he did some sort of illegal things, uh, and uh, it, they happen to be illegal things on behalf of very, very good, a very good purpose. But you can see that the higher law could be a slippery slope, uh, and that uh, if kind of anybody comes along and said, I'm following my higher law to do this, mm-hmm. it becomes rather dangerous. Now, in his case, he's what I call sort of a good a good terrorist, so to speak. I mean, he's, uh, or, or at least, I mean, if you consider slavery slavery to be a bad thing, which I do, and which most people do nowadays, then I, you know, he was he was a terrorist on behalf of of a, a, a very good cause. Um, he didn't consider himself a terrorist. He thought of himself as a freedom freedom fighter, freedom fighter. Um, but um, that, that's, I, that's know, interesting because I mean, that's that's how. Uh, terrorists that we now universally uh, yeah. condemn uh, in America now, that's how they describe themselves as well. I know. I know. I know. It's, uh, uh, you know, it, it is a very, very difficult. And, and when Lincoln ran for office in 1860, just shortly after Harper's Ferry, 
he frankly had to distance himself from John Brown because, you know, he didn't want to identify the Republican Party. The Republican Party were the liberals back then, the the Democrats Mm -hmm. were the conservatives, and he was a liberal. But he didn't want to go as far as to uh, identify with John Brown at that moment because uh, John Brown followed the higher law, and Lincoln wanted to remain within the Constitution. And, yeah, it it does pose uh, – that's why John Brown will always be a kind of thorn, uh, an interesting thorn uh, in the side of American history. Right, yeah. I mean, as a society, a a culture at large, we we don't condone violence as a means to reach political goals. I mean, that's the definition of terrorism. But uh, we also view the end of slavery as a historical imperative. I mean, it's hard to square those things. Yeah, and John Brown was was uh, really concerned that many many people would die uh, if there were a war, and indeed, seven hundred and fifty thousand Americans died during the Civil War, which is more Americans than all wars combined that actually died during during that war. So he was unfortunately he was right in predicting predicting what's going to happen and and actually he saw harper's ferry as a way of maybe creating a kind of panic that would make the south uh want to come to terms with the north and, mm. and liberate its slaves and so forth but it didn't didn't work out that way <laughs> yeah. as we know <laughs> of course uh, yeah. again i'm speaking with david reynolds distinguished professor at the graduate center of the city university of new york author of john brown abolitionist the man who killed slavery sparked the civil war and seated civil rights. He's in town for an event sponsored by DeWitt C. Holbrook Memorial Trust in the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law titled Detroit's Abolitionist History, 160 Years of Fighting for Justice that's happening today. You can find more information at law.udmercy.edu. Uh, David Reynolds, uh, I just want to ask you quickly about sort of viewing the world of John Brown in that time in American history versus our own world in 2019. I mean, we we see in some ways similar threads, at least that we can describe in the same words, the division, the violence. Um, do you think that they can be compared or, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about two times in American history where we see the, the wedge being driven in the middle of American society. We feel more divided than than we have in our in our own personal memories. Um, is there is there a good comparison to be made between the two those two times? Yeah, there there is because what happened back then is that they reached a point. The two different sides reached a point where they were not meaningfully communicating with each other. They were each caricaturing each other and uh, just kind of talking over each other. And it's a little bit like uh, whatever Rush Limbaugh versus I don't know <laughs> Michael Moore maybe yeah, someone or, like yeah, that. Or, I'm sorry, Michael. Yeah, Michael. To, Moore to use a, to, uh, a Michigander. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So it's that kind of thing. So, so we have a, a similar polarization going on, and I think the answer is frankly, um, particularly in our atmosphere, is to do what Lincoln did. Now, Lincoln positioned himself. Now, he was a progressive. He was a liberal and everything, but he positioned himself very close to the center. And he made the center vital and interesting, and he became our greatest president. But why? Because of that. Exactly because he didn't leap for the higher law. I think that, uh, you know, 
rebuilding the center in a in a meaningful way. And we no longer have many, for example, Republicans who are centrist in the Nelson Rockefeller, you know, vein or something like that. And 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 you know, there's a, even a, a certain emerging stridency uh, even on the, on the left. And one can see where where it comes from, and it's very understandable on both sides. But I'm just saying that uh, it would be great if somehow uh, we could find a figure who. Uh, brings alive that center and and uh, in the way that that Lincoln did. Do you think we're at, in at risk at this point, leading to uh, a schism? Maybe not quite at the same level of, as the Civil War. At least I would hope not. But, but yeah. something something uh, significant and in, in maybe in the, you could mention on the same page or the same sentence. Uh, I think the Civil War is one of a one of a kind because. It was four years of very, very bloody war, and I don't think that, I mean, I think that what happens, uh, and that was also geographically split between the North and the South, so you had two regions. And in America, it's a little different now, where you have, uh, okay, you have red states and blue states, uh, and, and so forth, but within each state, you have sort of purple areas, so to speak. Uh, and, and, I mean, geographically, <laughs> If you wanted to go to war, I mean, it, it would be a sort of a difficult thing to kind of line everybody up, so to speak. And I don't think that that that's going to happen. Uh, I I don't really see kind of military action. Uh, I just hope that the American system will regenerate itself and the democratic process. Uh, you know, Lincoln believed above all in the democratic process, and I hope that there's a cleansing element within the democratic uh, process that will work things out over time. And I kind of have faith that it will. I, I really do. In the recent midterms, we had a pendulum pendulum swing in one direction. Uh, in the 2016 election, we had a kind of pendulum swing in the other direction. And I think we just have to kind of wait for the pendulum to become a little more stable, <laughs> Yeah, seems to me. Sure. All right, David yeah. Reynolds, thank you so much for joining us today on Detroit Today. Thank you very much, Jake. Thank you. That was David Reynolds, author of John Brown, Abolitionist, the man who killed slavery, sparked the Civil War, and ceded civil rights. He spoke with Detroit Today producer Jake Neer. Coming up next, Detroit photographer Amy Sacco was recently featured in National Geographic for her stunning photography of people ice fishing on the Great Lakes. We'll hear about that project, how climate change threatens ice fishing culture, and how Saka's relationship with her father sparked her desire to document those things. 